Matthew chapter 21 is where we are this morning. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. If you find your way there, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 1. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jerusalem, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. And tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. You can be seated this morning. Uh, What we find here uh, is oftentimes entitled in your Bible there, if it has a heading there, perhaps the triumphal entry. And what we find here is Jesus really making his way into Jerusalem in a style or a manner unlike which we've seen Jesus do anything before. Uh, Anytime we have seen Jesus go places, uh, we have seen him go places and really try to avoid the crowds as much as possible. Now, oftentimes, as we've studied through the gospel, we've seen this as an impossibility because as soon as people heard about what Jesus was doing, as soon as they heard he was doing miracles, healing the sick, causing the blind to see, uh, lame uh, to walk again. Uh, The crowds began to come in so quickly and so fast that oftentimes it was difficult for Jesus to ever get away. But we oftentimes saw him trying to avoid those crowds, trying to to keep himself hidden in the fact of who he was. And you remember oftentimes when he would heal people, he would say, don't tell anybody who I am. Don't tell them uh, what has happened here. You just go and find that you've been healed and, and move on from there. So we find now Jesus doing something profoundly different than what he had done before because now he's going into Jerusalem in a much more a grandiose way in comparison to uh, how he has operated before. And the reason it's called the triumphal entry because it's very much similar to what you would find when a king uh, would be coronated or when a king would come back from victory. Now, as Americans, we have a hard time correlating this uh, with, with an Americanized understanding, right? Because we don't really have a king in such a way that Jerusalem had a king or that uh, England has a king or a queen. Uh, but now we've, we've been able to get ideas of this, right? We just had a, a couple of royal weddings a few years ago. And you see the, the, the pomp and the circumstance and all the elaborate details that go into that. And it's the, such the same way when a, when a king or a, a queen is, is, is brought into power, and they brought in, and then all the people celebrate. In fact, it was pointed out by, by one text that I looked at this week, talking about this idea of how grandiose these celebrations are, that when Queen Victoria uh, was coronated in 1838, now I want you to imagine this, she had a crown that had giant rubies and sapphires, 
And in this crown was a diamond that weighed in at 309 carats. Now you think about that, that's a large diamond. Now, and then her scepter that she carried during this coronation also had a diamond in it that weighed in at 516 carats. So you think about how grandiose this is. I mean, that's some, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I don't wear diamonds. I'm not sure all about that, but I know that the bigger they are, the better they are, right? That's what what women say. So we hear all this talk about this, this pomp and this circumstance. Now, as Americans, we don't understand this. We have an inauguration parade for a president, uh, but the really kind of the contrast of that is when you have an inauguration for a president because of our country and the way our political system is, you usually have a divide there, right? You have one party that's won and one party that hasn't, and there's always kind of this divide between the two of them. Whereas in a place like England, you might have somebody who doesn't really care maybe for the queen or the king, but there's always still this celebration because they recognize what that stands for. There's still this celebration of, of the royalty of, of the king and the queen and this respect that happens and is, and is honored there. So you think about this, uh, this celebration of a king coming into power. I mean, the people would have been just rejoicing and celebrating. Everybody would have left what they were doing. They would have come down to watch the king or the queen be brought through the city. Uh, and it, just, it would just have been a, a beautiful sign of respect and celebration and joy. So with that thing in mind, now we move to what Jesus is doing here. Because what is happening here is a very poignant moment in Jesus' life. So the first thing I want you to notice in this text is a prophecy fulfilled, and that happens in the first six verses. So it says that as they approached Jerusalem, they had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey there and a colt. Untie her and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you will say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So let's talk about this just for a moment. Now, Pastor Ben talked last week about Jesus healing those two blind men, and that was in Jericho. So now Jesus has left Jericho, and he's making his way towards Jerusalem. And this is really his final journey into the city. Because he's moving into a point of his life, he's going to be making some very bold proclamations here in this week uh, leading up to Passover uh, and this Passover celebration there in Jerusalem. And he's going to be teaching the people and teaching his disciples and confronting uh, the scribes and the Pharisees just in this really intense way. So Jesus is making this final journey. This is really his last major public appearance before his crucifixion. Now, as I said, this is Passover week. Now, Passover is a Jewish celebration, celebrating what God had done for the Old Testament saints as they were in Egypt, and the, the um, plagues had moved all through Egypt, and the final plague come where God was going to kill the firstborn of all the, uh, of all the Egyptians. And so God had His people to take the blood of a lamb and use the hyssop branch to put it over the door of their house. So as the death angel passed through Egypt, their, uh, the death angel would pass over their house and protect their young ones inside. And so every year, the Jewish people celebrated this, God's Passover protection, that Passover lamb that had had to die, the blood that had to be shed to be put over the door so that God would pass over their house. Now, Passover was a huge celebration. About 10 years after this would happen here in Jerusalem, and so uh, there was a, a census that was taken to count how many lambs were used during the Passover celebration. So this is about 10 years removed uh, from, from Jesus's, the year of Jesus' crucifixion. And in that year, they used 260,000 lambs during the Passover celebration. That's a lot of lambs. Now, Jewish uh, uh, allowances, you said you could have one lamb for up to 10 people. 
So if you had one lamb for up to 10 people, they approximate that about 10 years after Jesus died, during the Passover celebration, there were approximately 2 million people huddled into Jerusalem for this celebration. Now, these weren't just the Jews that lived in Jerusalem. These were Jews from all over the region. Uh, These were people coming in from all over as as far reaches of the world that could make it there because every the the men, if you lived within a certain mile radius of Jerusalem, you were required to come to Passover. But those even who lived further out, they wanted to come because this was one of the pinnacles of the Jewish celebration. So you think about all these people crammed into Jerusalem, which makes it the perfect moment for Jesus to make a definitive statement about who he is. So he stops first in Bethany. Uh, They have guessed that this probably happened on a Saturday. And then by Monday, he had made it into Bethpage, which is a smaller city, relatively unknown, uh, between uh, Bethany and Jerusalem. Now, you remember Bethany is where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. It's where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. So he's going there, and as he's passing through, people no doubt recognize him. Uh, They recognized Jesus because he had been there not too long ago and raising Lazarus from the dead. And so as Jesus begins to make his journey, he's not making his journey to Jerusalem alone. He has his 12 disciples with him, but he also has the crowd that's going to be following him from Bethany. And as they make their way there, he stops in this small city of Bethpage, obviously the the Mount of Olives, and he gives his disciples some very specific and direct instructions. Notice what he says in verse 2. He says, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there with a colt. Untie her, untie them, and bring them to me. So Jesus is giving these two disciples very specific instructions. You go, and immediately you'll find a donkey. Now, I think it's, a, it's really interesting here. Jesus uses this word immediately two times in this passage. The first is when he sends his disciples to go. He says, you go out. And he says, as you come into this village, immediately you're going to find what you're looking for. They're not going to have to haphazardly search around the city. They're not going to have to go from door to door and ask what it is, uh, who has this uh, donkey and this uh, colt that they can take. No, Jesus says, immediately you're going to find them. And he says, immediately as you do, you untie them and you bring them to me. Now, there's some preparation that's demonstrated here from Jesus. Now, commentators disagree about exactly what's happening here. Some commentators think that Jesus knew these people already, or perhaps that they were Christians, uh, so that when, uh, when the disciples spoke to them and says, the Lord has needed them, that that was something that they would knew was a key phrase, that Jesus was in need of this donkey. Others more fall on the other side of this was just Jesus speaking um, with his divine, his divine ability to say he knew where the donkey was, which obviously he already did, but that there was no prearranged mate. We really don't know. But what we do understand from this is that Jesus knew exactly what he was getting ready to do because he's doing all of this in the perfect fulfillment of a prophecy. So the, 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 the donkey and the colt that are used here was not just some idea that Jesus had on the best way to get to Jerusalem. What he's doing here is making sure and ensuring, as as God always did, was that every prophecy about the Messiah, that Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of it. Because you see in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we find this prophecy about the Messiah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. You see a, 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 a summarization of it there. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Matthew interprets this and he sees this. The requirement of this prophecy is that there's two animals here, not just the colt, the, the foal of a donkey, but also the mother of this donkey as well. And it makes perfect sense. 
Because this colt, this young donkey, had never been ridden on. It was a very, very young animal. And so in order for this animal to come along and for Jesus to be able to do what needed to be done, it, for, to have its mother along with it would have made this process much simpler. It would have made this young donkey much more willing to behave, much more comfortable in this entire situation. So these two disciples go out. And you can only imagine them in this moment because they're human, just like we are. They know Jesus, they trust Jesus, but they're walking into a town which they don't know anybody. They're walking up to somebody's house, untying two animals and basically just taking them away with them. But now Jesus understands this. He says, listen, if anybody asks you what you're doing, you're to say that the Lord has need of them. And what does he say there? And immediately he will send them. I love that immediate phrasing. We see it so often in Jesus's life. Right? When Jesus heals somebody, immediately he was healed. When Jesus commands us and calls us to do something, he doesn't operate in the perhaps or the maybe or the what ifs. He operates in the immediacy. So Jesus is giving them this clear command. You go immediately do what I've told you to do. And if you have any problems, you say this and immediately they will let you go. So this is, he's, he's demonstrating his divine sovereignty here. He's demonstrating his power because as these disciples go, what do you think is going to happen to them when they walk into this city? Because they could have questioned or doubted, right? That that they're going to be able to walk into this town that they've never been to before and find a donkey and a colt that are there ready to just be taken. But as they walk in and the first thing they see is the donkey and the colt, and as they're untying them to come back, somebody walks out and he says, hey, what what are you doing with my donkey? And they just turn around and say, well, the Lord has need of them. They're like, oh, good, take them. This speaks something to these two disciples, because this again shows them just in a very small but very significant way the power and the authority that Jesus has over everything. Listen, if Jesus has power over seemingly small things as this, as going and fetching a donkey in the next city, brothers and sisters, let us be encouraged that Jesus has power over everything in our life. We don't have to be discouraged. He handles even the smallest, most insignificant things. Now, I love the fact that the disciples were obedient here. Because look at verse 6. It says, The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. Now, you know what we would have done as Americans, as American Christians, on the way? We would have said, Now, I know what Jesus told us to do. But it would probably be better off if, you know, instead of a donkey, let's look for a really nice horse. Because Jesus would be much more comfortable on a really nice horse than he would be on a donkey. It's like, now, before we, before we take this donkey, we should probably ask around and find out who has an extra one. So we would have done something like that. But I, but I love the fact that Matthew points out that the disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. And Spurgeon pointed out in this text, how much greater would we be as a church if we just did exactly as Jesus instructed us? Because oftentimes we're tempted to come up with our own ideas We're tempted to try to add to what Jesus has already told us to do. And sometimes we just need to do just as Jesus instructed us. And sometimes that's relatively easy. But sometimes that's hard. Because sometimes God calls us to do easy things. You know, it's not difficult to go serve somebody and and love on somebody and support them. I mean, it's challenging sometimes, but that's a relatively easy thing to do. But sometimes God calls us to speak difficult truth to people. And He calls us to speak difficult truth to people because... Oftentimes, that's the most loving thing we can do. But sometimes it's hard. But we need to be obedient. 
We need to be obedient just as these disciples did because what they were doing here was not, again, just fetching a ride for Jesus. What they were doing was ensuring that this prophecy that had been given some 500 years ago was perfectly fulfilled about the arrival of the Messiah. Zechariah had prophesied that when the Messiah finally arrived in Jerusalem, he was going to come riding on a donkey, even on a colt. So he's, he talks about the idea of the donkey, but then it even references there to the colt. So it's even the idea of the two of them together. Jesus is going to come in with a, uh, a donkey and with the donkey's young child, the colt, as he comes into Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting because we're going to talk about this in just a moment. Right here is this very clear prophecy recognized by the Jewish people about the Messiah. And notice how it says that the Messiah was going to come humbly. But now, what had the Jews come to believe at this point in time in Jesus' life? They believed that when the Messiah arrived, he was going to come in triumphantly. He was going to come in victoriously, you know, seated on a white horse, with marching in with his armies into Jerusalem to run out the Romans and to take back the city for the nation of Israel. They had missed what the Scriptures told them so clearly. That when the Messiah arrives, He's not going to come in that way the first time. Now when He returns again, He's coming that way. But His first arrival here to Jerusalem, the Scripture says He's going to come humbly and mounted on a donkey. So, these two disciples were obedient, and they were obedient to go fetch exactly what Jesus had called them to do, so that this prophecy was totally, completely, and perfectly fulfilled. And for those of you who haven't been with us, we've noticed this all the way through the book of Matthew. Matthew is writing, again, specifically to a Jewish audience. And so all the way through the book of Matthew, we find at every opportunity he can, him pointing out how Jesus' life perfectly fulfills every single Old Testament prophecy about the Messiah. Because he doesn't want there to be any chance of any Jewish person to read his gospel and think that Jesus could not be the Messiah. Every opportunity, he says, this is so that it was fulfilled what the prophet said. This is so that it might be fulfilled. This is so that this was fulfilled. And again, we find this prophecy perfectly fulfilled by Jesus. So not only here was there this prophecy fulfilled, but I want you to notice here that there's a proclamation being made. So notice there in verses 7 through 8, it says that they brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. And most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Now, I spoke at the very beginning about Jesus' really paradigm shift and how he's operating and doing his ministry, because usually he came in in a very quiet manner, trying to hide away. But now Jesus is coming in in a very bold declaration. Because what he's doing is he's coming in in, a, in the fashion of a king. And what Jesus is saying to those who are gathered around is, I am your Messiah. I have arrived on the scene, and I am proclaiming to you, publicly demonstrating that I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. Now, it's a totally new pattern. Now, what's interesting is, is the idea of this riding in on a donkey. Now, first, we know that it fulfilled that prophecy. But there's also a second thing that it demonstrates. Because when a king would come in, oftentimes he would come in on a horse. That demonstrated power, authority, and victory. But there have been times when a king came in on a donkey. And this was actually the first time, as far as in the Scriptures that we find, that a king rode in on a donkey since King Solomon, which happened in 1 Kings chapter 32. It says, Then David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehodiah. 
And they came into the king's presence, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your lord, and have my son Solomon ride on my own mule, and bring him down to Ginnon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him there as king over Israel, and blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. Because the difference between a king riding in on a horse and riding in on a donkey or a mule was the demonstration of what that king was coming in. As a king rode in on a mule or a donkey, he was coming in in peace. It was a demonstration of the idea of a peaceful king. And Jesus was coming to bring peace in this moment. He was coming to bring peace between us and God. He was coming to bring peace to a people uh, who needed to know what true and lasting peace was. So Jesus comes in in this totally new way. Because now all the people can see him. Instead of trying to hide from the people, he's demonstrating to them, I am your king, I come in the idea of peace, riding upon this donkey. Now, there's also the idea here, uh, this donkey being a young colt that had never been ridden upon. Because we find this idea in the scriptures. When you had the, uh, the red heifer in the Old Testament, it was supposed to be a red heifer in which there was no defect, in which a yoke had never been placed on. Uh, and when they prepared the cart, for the, the Ark of the Covenant. It was to be a, a cart and a, that had never been used before and two cows that had never been yoked before. So there's this idea of something being totally new, never being used, never being yoked, or never being ridden upon. So there's this demonstration again that this animal was perfectly by God set apart for the use of Jesus in coming in to Jerusalem. So what made this interesting as well is not only is Jesus proclaiming this about himself, he's not only publicly proclaiming his identity as the king, but we find the people recognizing it and proclaiming him that as well. Because it says that most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting palm branches from the trees and spreading them out in the road. Now, this was something that had happened all throughout the Bible. It was just a sign of recognition and respect. Uh, when, when earlier kings were um, were coronated in the Old Testament, we find the people doing the same thing. It was this idea of really kind of laying their cloaks down in, in humble submission, you know, and, and putting their, their clothes on the ground in a sense for the, as the animal and the king walked over them, submitting to the authority and the power of the king. Now, it's interesting. Remember that this crowd started in Bethany and followed Jesus there to Jerusalem as they come into the city. No doubt other people are following along with them because as people are, anytime they see a crowd of people, they're curious about what's going on. Jesus was well known in and around Jerusalem because of all the miracles that he had performed. And so the crowds are coming around him. The crowds are gathered around and notice what they begin to say because we find this praise being exclaimed. Look at verses uh, nine, excuse me, look at verse nine. It says, the crowds were going ahead of him, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So these crowds began to celebrate. They began to praise Jesus and, and, and offer out this, this cry to him. Hosanna. Hosanna literally means save now. It's paralleled to a couple of different texts. Uh, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. O Lord, do save. We beseech you, O Lord. We beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. 
but also from 2 Samuel 14.4, Now, when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help or save, O king. It's this desperate cry of a people. A cry of a people desperate to be rescued. Now, we would hope that when we hear this cry coming from the mouth of the people, that they're crying in the sense of understanding Jesus is truly the Messiah. Help. Save us, O Messiah. Save us, not just from the physical things of this world, but more importantly, from our sin. Save us from the penalty, from the curse, from the overwhelmingness of sin. But what we find out just in a few minutes later is that the cry of, the, of what the people were crying out was not so much in the fact that they recognized Jesus as the true Messiah of the Savior of the world, as the Savior from sin, but they recognized Him as the Messiah they wanted Him to be because they saw Him riding in in a position of authority and they thought, well, finally Jesus has come upon the scene to establish His kingdom. Finally, Jesus has come upon the scene to establish His rule and His reign. But He deserved every amount of praise that He got. He deserved every amount of respect that He was receiving. Because you remember, if you actually read this parallel passage in Luke chapter 19, it says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Because this was an important moment. Because not only was Jesus declaring himself to be king, not only was Jesus declaring himself to be the Messiah, but he was really putting the Pharisees on notice. They, they had plans to kill him. They had plans to destroy him. They had plans to do whatever they want to do. But what Jesus was doing here, he was forcing the timetable into the place where God had purposed it to be. Because Jesus had to die at the right time. Jesus had to die in perfect fulfillment with everything that God had to put into place. And so by Jesus riding into the city on this day, he was putting the Pharisees and the scribes on notice that I am here, I'm the Messiah, I'm proclaiming these things, and now you've got to do whatever you think you have to do. You are now on notice. I want you to notice the final thing in this text. Uh, and, it, and it's since entitled it, a, a people confused. Because notice, look at verse 10 and 11. It says, When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Can you imagine? All of these people gathered around, hundreds of thousands of people, no doubt, following Jesus as He makes His way into Jerusalem. Maybe if you were unaware of what was happening, you just walked up on the scene and you see this man seated on a donkey walking through and everybody laying down their, their clothes on the ground, cutting palm branches out of the tree, laying them down on the street and, and celebrating and praising Him. Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. It's just this worship and praise that's happening as Jesus makes His way through the streets. But it says that when He gets inside of Jerusalem, the city is stirred up. And they're asking this question, who is this? Who, who is this? And now we begin to recognize the problem. So outside of the city, 
Everybody seemingly knew who Jesus was. They had recognized his actions. They had watched his miracles. They had heard his preaching. But then you got inside of the city, and the people seemingly did not recognize him. And what we find out, and this is one of the the saddest parts about this story, and you've heard it said over and over again, that the same people who were celebrating Jesus here, as he walked into the city, would be numbered among the same who were crying for him to be crucified just a short time later. And so what's the problem? What is the difficulty that these people have that one day they would celebrate Jesus and one day they would cry for him to be crucified? Why is the problem that they see all these people celebrating him, but they don't recognize or understand who he is? Well, the problem is that expectation that they had. Inside the city, you have all of these Jewish people who are there for Passover. And again, they're expecting a Messiah who's going to come in victoriously with his armies. Not a humble and meek man sitting on the back of a donkey walking through the city. They're expecting somebody's going to come in and give them everything they think they deserve. They think they deserve to have Jerusalem back. They deserve to have their lives back underneath out of Roman oppression. They think they deserve to have all of these blessings from God that they've been promised by the scribes and the Pharisees. They have all of this that they expect, all of this that they want, but it's not coming in the package that they expect it to be delivered in. And so when it doesn't happen exactly how they want it, they reject it. Sounds very similar to what happens today. When somebody says, well, God, I will serve you if you'll do this for me. It doesn't work that way. We don't get to make the demands to God. God gives the demands to us. And so you hear people, and and unfortunately, sometimes they're promised this by pastors. If you become a Christian, then, or if you follow God, then your life will get better, or your marriage will get better, or your children will start behaving, or you'll have a better job, or a better car, or a better house. And so people come to God on the wrong basis, on the wrong reasoning, and when they don't get everything they're promised, then they walk away. Because they were believing in the wrong thing to begin with. And you find this here in the Jewish people. They understood that God had promised a Messiah. That was true. The Scriptures were replete with examples of the pro- God's promises and prophecies about the Messiah. But the problem was, was by the time Jesus came about, the people weren't believing what the Scripture said about the Messiah. They were believing what the scribes and the Pharisees said about the Messiah. So they were believing in the right thing, but under the wrong conditions. They were believing in the right idea, but with the wrong understanding of who it was. And what a tragedy. What what a tragedy for these people who were gathered in Jerusalem. So again, we could say the biggest gathering of Jewish people every single year was here at the day of Passover. And you had all these people who were there celebrating what God had done in delivering them out of the land of Egypt. And what had they been crying for in the land of Egypt? Lord, send us a deliverer. Lord, send us a Savior. And he promised, I'm going to deliver you, and I'm going to send you a deliverer, but one day I'm going to send you the true deliverer. I'm going to send you the Messiah. I'm going to send one who will come and truly redeem you and save you. So all these people here are celebrating this event that is so focused on the promise of the arrival of Jesus. And Jesus walks through their very midst and they miss him. He walks through their very midst and they're so looking for somebody else 
that they miss the fact that Jesus is in front of them. It's a tragedy. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses writing, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. Had the Jewish people heeded these words, they would have not missed Jesus. Because here he says, you shall listen to him. And Jesus knew this. He understood it. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Because if we go back to the book of Luke, this same exact encounter, Luke gives us the, the, the story that as Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave you in one stone upon the other because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What a tragedy. That people who had been so long looking missed the time of Jesus' visitation. They heard His words, but they did not believe Him as the Messiah. They recognized His power, but they did not recognize His deity. Brothers and sisters, there are many people around us who are this same way. They recognize God as a good person, or Jesus as a good person, as a good teacher, but they do not recognize His deity. His Messiahship is the Son of God. Brothers and sisters, there are people in churches that are the same way. They believe a God of their own imagination. They believe a God that they have created for themselves, a God that allows them, as, as Pastor uh, Ben pointed out, a God that allows them to live in their sin and not have to confront it. A God that allows them to do what they want to do, but without any kind of complications to their own life. But what a tragedy is that the thing that Jesus is speaking here, He's speaking of, of the destruction of Jerusalem is going to happen because they did not recognize what Jesus, who Jesus was, but there's coming another day of judgment and destruction for people in this world. That if they do not recognize who Jesus is, as Jesus would say, woe to them on that day. Maybe you're here this morning. And maybe this is you. Maybe you recognize in your own life that you have believed in the person of Jesus, but not in His power and His majesty and His authority. It's very easy to do. It's very easy to hear the stories of Jesus and believe that He was a good man who did good things, but do you truly believe that He is the Messiah? The way that you demonstrate that you truly believe that He is the Messiah is you do what the disciples did. You follow His instructions. The first is to repent and to put your faith and trust in Him. 
And the second is to keep following Him. Enduring through this world. And maybe you're here this morning and you know that you've never even just put your trust in Christ. You have gone to church and you've heard the good news. And it's not that you're opposed to it, but you just know that you've never taken that moment to go before God and repent of your sins and to put your faith and trust in Christ. The Scripture says that today is the day of salvation. There's no better time than now to make sure that you're right with a holy God. Jesus here in this moment is making this, vis- this excuse me, visible and powerful declaration that He is King. Now what's going to happen in the coming weeks is we're going to find as He leads up to the cross, He's going to demonstrate this in so many different ways. Jesus now, more than any other time in His ministry, has become very vocal and public because He understands that He has got now... Earlier on in his ministry, Jesus is worried about the timetable getting shortened. He needed time to preach. He needed time to heal. He needed time to make those declarations. But now he knows his time is limited, and he's going to make every advantage of the time. It's some very powerful text coming up in the next few weeks. So I encourage you to go ahead and read ahead. Prepare your heart for it, because there's some challenging texts in the next couple of weeks. But it's all culminating in this idea of Jesus establishing Himself as the true Messiah and the King. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Jesus' declaration here. We thank You, Lord, for what this means for us. Lord, that we do not worship a God who is powerless, but we worship a God who is all-powerful. That we do not have a God who can do nothing for us, but we have a God who has made a way for us to be forgiven. That we do not have a God who is dead and buried, but we have one who not only died, but defeated the power of death, hell, and the grave and has resurrected from the dead. And that by His resurrection, we have hope and confidence and authority in knowing that our sins have been forgiven. Lord, as we see this text and we watch Jesus now for the first time very boldly and publicly declare who He is. Father, what a tragedy it is to know that there were so many who heard and even who celebrated His arrival but yet did not believe in who He truly was. They enjoyed the moments of the crowd celebration and got caught up in the, in the, jubila, in the jubilation but did not put their faith and trust in Your Son. And Father, how many are there today who still want the benefits or the promises or the privileges of what it means to be a Christian, but still do not want to put their trust in Jesus? Lord, there is no hope in You without hope in Christ. There is no believing in You without also believing in Your Son. There is no forgiveness in You without the forgiveness provided by Jesus. Lord, may we remember these things. May we be reminded by these things. May we trust and hope in these things. 
And we ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.